an editor just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust Section. Learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Nailers and editors just talking to teachers. Hello and welcome to Naylor's Natter. My name's David Weston and I'm the Chief Executive of the Teacher Development Trust and Naylor's Natter is in partnership with us. This first section of the podcast we're using to highlight some fantastic practice before we go back to Phil in the studio with his main guest. Uh, so my guest today is... B. Tingey and I am the Literacy Lead at St George's School in Blackpool. Thanks very much, Bea. Now, we've been doing some work today looking at uh, the leadership of professional learning, and I know you've been doing some really interesting things here. Could you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, here at St George's, um, the way in which we um, think is really successful for our staff to learn professionally is to allocate the appropriate amount of time and the amount of time that is allocated is also allocated in what we would like to refer to as a safe space whereby that that they know where they're going to um, have that professional learning. The time is very important because what we like to do is instead of delivering all the time to our staff it's about building up relationships and building up that trust. So staff are able to do, for example, at the moment, their micro-research inquiries. Mm. They're able to have some face-to-face time. And then they're able to go away and to plan that inquiry. Mm. There is time built in for them to come back again Mm. for some more face-to-face time. And Mm. that's a process that is actually going to be happening over several months. Mm. Now, what's quite interesting about this is that we've related this, we've linked this to um, our appraisal system. It's fair to say at St. George's, we're at the very beginning of Mm. that journey. Mm. However, I do believe the way in which it's been sold by the CPD lead here Mm. at St George's um, has really benefited um, this. Staff have really, um, they feel empowered because they've they've chosen where they would like to improve Mm. with their CPD. Uh, We have aligned all of these very closely to the main school priorities. We think that's really important. Um, And one of the appraisal targets is for staff to carry out their own micro-research inquiries. But like I said, the way in which it's been sold to staff, um, I think think we'll really see the benefit of that. And also, there's no pressure to make sure that that research is successful. Yeah. So if, for instance, you find from your research that perhaps X, Y, and Z doesn't work, yeah. then then that's absolutely fine. Um, and I think by removing those numerical, um, sort of like high stakes, types of appraisal I think it's really positive it's a really positive way forward at St George's yeah absolutely and um, what I really liked is how you've combined a few things together there so you've got the research engagement through the micro inquiry which people are empowered to have some choice but you've structured it as well you've said you've recognized there's a tension with the performance management that you don't want to make it tick box and you don't want to make it so high stakes and stressful that people then won't learn but you've actually found a way to focus it on the effort and the process rather than you must get this outcome Um, and then also thinking about the wider cultural elements you know like a great classroom I suppose you're thinking how do you create the right trusting environment where staff want to learn so that's really interesting how you've combined all those elements together and are you seeing impact from all of this? Yes, now we're seeing impact even though we're at the beginning of our journey because we're actually beginning to experience uh, more and more people 
conducting conversations about education, mm. about educational research, um, about what's working in their classroom, mm. the fact that we have got people discussing which projects they're going to undertake, yeah. um, who they're going to focus on, how they're going to do it, which um, which research books they might want to mm. want to read, which educational blogs they might want to have mm. a look at. It, it's becoming at St George's. How can I say it's more of an academic yeah. environment? Yeah. Um, which is great and at most I would say most people feel very comfortable with that yeah. um, and again I think looking forward what would be really good for us to reflect on would be you know perhaps if some staff maybe staff who've been um, established for a long time you know how do they find this particular yeah. academic approach yeah. maybe yeah. Um, and it's a, again it's about how it's sold I think it's about how it's how it's sold to yeah. the staff yeah. and it's about ensuring that they have the opportunity for that professional mm. learning, which I think is probably more of an appropriate term maybe than professional development. Yeah, that's really interesting. And regular listeners to Nailers Natter will recognise some of the ideas from Thomas Gusky, who I know Phil spoke to a few weeks ago, of thinking you're not just looking at the impact on how staff feel, but how they think the way they organise meetings and lessons and impact on their practice. And you're looking at impact at all different layers, aren't you? And also I'm reflecting that it connects to the idea of leadership traction that um, I've talked about in the last couple of podcasts as well of aligning performance management in a developmental way, but also you're bringing staff with you and giving them enough choice mm. that they feel they own the process. So it's really exciting hearing about what you're doing here. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. You're very welcome. Phil, back to you in the studio. <laughs> Nailers Netter, just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust Section, learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Nailers Netter, just talking to teachers. Okay, so hello Neil and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Phil. All right, thank you for being there this evening, much appreciated. Happy to be here. Excellent. Right, so I'm going to do my gentle introductory question, which is tell us about your journey to this point, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit. So I wonder if you could tell listeners about your sort of journey from, by your own admission, an edu Twitter newbie, to a research at Dublin. I mean, where to begin? So I really started to engage with edu Twitter. It was about this time last year, and all I did was put a quick little video of a, a VR App, a little science app that showed a, a real heart beating and that blew up and got about I don't know, like 45,000 views or something like that and I thought wow that's when I kind of really understood the uh, spread and the reach that Twitter could get and from there I'm in the school that I was working at my uh, fiance at the time moved jobs down to Kent and I was working in uh, northwest London so we kind of had to find somewhere and it, that was halfway through uh, an academic year and she's not a teacher so didn't really appreciate that you can't just pack up your bags halfway through an academic year and uh, join a new school quite as easily as it can do in the uh, in other sectors so then I had to we had to find a place where we could um, where I could commute to where I was still working in northwest London where she could get to work uh, down in Kent and kind of I thought well I can use this new hour and a quarter each way commute to either do something uh, productive with my time or could just use it to be on my phone doing nothing just trawling social media and so I managed to find the Craig Barton podcast uh, 
and that literally just changed everything for me about two years ago about how I approach everything. Started to engage with Twitter, started to write my own little blog, uh, got to know a few um, people like Claire Seeley and Mark Enser from on, online and they kind of were sharing the kind of things that I was writing about. And before long, I had a uh, a message uh, from the people running uh, Research Ed Surrey, whether I'd be interested in doing that, which is in uh, two days' time, uh, two weeks' time, which I said, yeah, sure, not a problem at all. Kind of not really having a, a clue what I was going to talk about. Um, and then as being a primary school teacher, as soon as uh, you hear that you're primary, you're, uh, everyone seems to want you to fill out some kind of, to tick a box, but I've really enjoyed the opportunities. And so I've ended up being at National. Uh, that was at the beginning of September. And as I say, last week, um, I managed to get to Dublin. So it was all down to really my fiancé changing job halfway through an academic year and me choosing to be productive on that commute. <laughs> and the gateway of the Mr. Barton Moths, Ma- Moths, the Mr. Barton Maths podcast even, which definitely, as listeners will be able to tell, has influenced me significantly. Um, so yes, all hail to Craig. All hail to Craig. Yeah, I managed to meet him luckily at um, the National and I was a ball of nerves and annoyingly my sessions uh, coincided with his session, but in the, when the, in the speaker room at lunch, I managed to build up enough courage to say hi and how much he had literally changed my practice, which was great. Really, really appreciated that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and while we're on Craig Barton anecdotes, so um, I, I, I've seen him quite a few times and he does research at Blackpool for us, but um, the only times I ever seem to come into contact with him is when he sat at my desk recording the post-Blackpool podcast um, with <laughs> Simon Cox. So quite a, twice in two years now I've barged into my office to find Craig Barton sat there with his microphone and equipment. <laughs> so any time you listen back to the Research Ed Blackpool specials, you'll hear a clunk and a, oops, sorry, and, and that'll be me. <laughs> That'll be you. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, so talking about primary, as you were there, and two things that I really enjoy are obviously research, but also science. So I, I really enjoyed your blog about achieving coherence in primary science. So um, yeah, and, and the title's just fantastic. So why should it be less like <laughs> The Simpsons and more like Game of Thrones? This is one of those kind of you struck gold once kind of things, and I'm, I'm convinced that's me done that. And that's me big idea and me educational worth all in that one blog um it was about christmas last year when i started looking through the science curriculum and you know hearing claire seeley talk and mary myatt talking about curriculum at research ed uh, kent uh, in november last year as well and then you know you're that thinking about how a sequence curriculum can really uh, you know enhance and you know help students understand this content later on when it gets more complicated and I was looking through the science curriculum and I was thinking the one in primary is fairness to whoever wrote it for the DFE uh, did a really good job at sequencing the content and how it builds on year on year on year on year on year but when the actual implementation of it it kind of felt like a bit as I mentioned in the blog a bit like the Simpsons where it's just you pull off one thing off the shelf it doesn't feel like you enjoy the episode for what it is, but you don't really feel like it's part of something bigger. There's no big overarching plot that kind of takes it somewhere or develops it into you know some deeper 
kind of stuff. It just kind of remains on its own as a standstill as kind of what I call a switch off TV. You don't need to give it your full attention. And contrasting to when Game of Thrones was coming out and about, you know, if you're watching that from season one all the way through to season seven at the time and how intricate the plot details are and how you have this big overarching plot for the whole season or for the whole, you know, for the whole, uh, I'm thinking of the word now. <laughs> yeah, for the whole series of Game of Thrones and how each one is then, each season is has its own kind of miniature plot that links back to the whole plot for the whole season, for the whole series. And I was just thinking, God, you know, this should be what a curriculum is like. Nothing is there by chance. Everything is so carefully sequenced. It means you have to watch episode one, season one, to kind of understand what everything is happening. And then looking at it through a bit deeply, it was actually screenwriters and people who make TV shows actually do a lot of really good educational kind of things that we could adapt, like the, the previously and having that kind of short um, retrieval kind of practice at the beginning of a lesson getting that clear those cliffhangers in at the end to make sure we keep on wanting to come back and I so said I wrote that I had a message from Claire Seeley saying you beat me to the punch can I please uh, borrow your idea and reference your ideas that you make in here and uh, use that as a basis of a research ed talk that she was doing and I said yeah and so for most of the research eds last year uh, Claire Seeley was uh, kindly referencing me and the blog and kind of that got a lot of attention and so that definitely kind of helped put my name out there on the Twitch sphere when, when, when Claire Seeley wants to use one of your ideas that's, uh, that's something special and not something to, uh, to say no to either no, definitely not. Definitely not. So in terms of um, science, I mean, this is obviously a broad sweeping statement to a primary teacher who, you know, you can only speak for your own experience. But how do you feel, you know, in terms of curriculum time, how much time is science given now compared to maybe what it was four or five, six years ago? I mean, it's gone down mass since they got rid of the science that the, the time has from the timetable time has reduced quite significantly. Um, but it's kind of definitely, definitely I feel like making a comeback in the last kind of two or three years. Um, you're normally getting about two to three hours a week of science. You know, I would imagine a, prim- uh, a standard primary classroom would, would put to the subject. I was just thinking because um, one of the complaints was quite often at Key Stage 3 that we were simply going over what had been done at primary school, particularly at the time that there was the, the, the primary science sat. And, you know, in a, in a typical secondary teacher's, uh, you know, way of doing things, well, yes, we're going to go and teach it on air, but we're mm-hmm. going to teach it properly. You know, that, that, <laughs> that, that kind of attitude was, was prevalent. And what happened was then that we ended up reteaching a lot of stuff and we ended up then eventually moving the curriculum sort of further down in terms of the, the content and, and much more detail right. sort of going to Key Stage 3. But with, over the last couple of years, it feels as if we've had to start from a, a, where probably we were before that just to kind of get up to speed a little bit quicker. So it's great to hear that it's, it's on the way back, definitely. Yeah, I think now that primary school is kind of, we're used to the, uh, the reading content for the SAT, we're used to the, uh, 
the, the maths we're used to the, the standards now for literacy and writing and grammar and all of that and everything else that we get measured about measured on um we can definitely kind of put those attentions to those other subjects and it is again Ofsted's focus now is the broad and balanced curriculum so we kind of have to be putting our focus on it otherwise it will get um picked up mm. no definitely in terms of did you get a chance to read the ef's uh, secondary science guidance report did you have a chance to look at that uh, I had a quick kind of brief look over it when you sent it through and um, it all looks good and it all makes sense and there are some things that definitely kind of um, that I kind of can see in the uh, Game of Thrones uh, Simpsons model yeah. that I definitely use. Certainly, you know, the um, uh, I'm looking at particularly number four, so the retrieval of knowledge. So I think one of the things that um, made the Game of Thrones kind of model quite powerful with those um, the big use, adapting those big ideas of science that I um, that I used and made up. So those were the idea. So for um, secondary colleagues who may not know, it's very rare that the um, uh, that science is kind of taught within the, the disciplines of science. So your physics, biology, um, and chemistry that tends not to happen that often. So um, using uh, the ACE's big ideas, we kind of morphed them ever so slightly to things like the natural world, pushes and pulls, the universe, energy and materials, and finding big ideas within those and using those as kind of concept holders, which you can then regularly use as um, you know, retrievals. You could do like a brain dump and think about right, right, everything that you know about the universe. And in my mind, the teachers have taught it in such a way that when they say the universe that triggers the schemas going on and so everything goes on there so there's that constant retrieval happening so i'm hoping if we did send some kids up to um black cornwall and that could be that you'd get some pretty good pretty good scientists who can remember their stuff because i say those things like retrieval practice space practice those are kind of things that i'm definitely kind of starting to implement throughout the schools that I work with yeah no absolutely and I mean I was only joking before what I said the, the, re- <laughs> the reason that we had to move the key stage three curriculum is because science had been so well taught as everything is from primary yeah. colleagues that, that we were just going over the same things that had already been done and that's why we needed to move it so it was before I get any complaints I was, I was only joking <laughs> and actually these days I spend most of my time in primary schools and not in secondary schools so I, you know, oh, that's I'm, not, interesting. I'm not claiming to be an expert you know and I do, <laughs> I do use the, the, the wrong uh, phraseology sometimes when I I'm in primary schools as colleagues will attest uh, you know that I'm working with but I've got a much better working knowledge hopefully of what it looks like in primary school but I was just interested with the EF guidance because there's going to be a new EF primary science guide, a guide coming out fairly soon so I'm just interested how you there thought is, secondary yeah. one and, and, and what kind of things you might want to see on that primary one um, I think the sequencing is definitely um, something that's there I'd love to see a requirement with um senior leaders, um, kind of putting that investment into uh, um, teacher subject knowledge because you can teach some really kind of complicated science and we try our best, but say we we don't all have uh, degrees in the subjects that we teach. So definitely I would love to see uh, a focus on improving subject knowledge of teachers, um, working closely with secondary colleagues, 
to kind of perhaps maybe do something about that. Um, particularly like looking at um, the secondary one, I'm looking at the sixth, the language of science. Um, that's obviously massive in uh, primary school, kind of breaking down complicated things like photosynthesis into its component parts, so like photo, light, sin, with together and the thesis, the setting, putting or placing, and kind of bringing those kinds of things down to uh, primary school and looking at kind of that and those details. So I'm just going to move on a little bit to talk about differentiation. So, we, you know, differentiation has been a hot topic on this podcast with various different guests talking about their views on that. So I really enjoyed your blog via um, Third Space Learning, which was called yep. Differ- Differentiation in the Classroom and Effective Strategies to Close the Attainment Gap. So we'll just let listeners know what kind of things you suggested there. Uh, so this blog, I've, I've read uh, Mark McCourt's Teaching for Mastery and kind of quickly became absolutely obsessed with the book and Mark and his kind of approaches. So a lot of the uh, information through this blog is um, attributed to him and kind of some strategies that he suggests for some mass specific um, ideas. But um, the main kind of finding for me and that some of the biggest ideas is this kind of perfect mix that the McKinsey review found from the OECD about the mix between um, direct instruction and inquiry-based learning. Um, obviously, it shows that the ideal kind of mix is where the majority of your lessons um, contain some form of direct instruction, um, but there are a few lessons there that enables children to kind of inquire with the knowledge that they've acquired. So definitely for me, it's about getting that mixture right. I know um, Tom Sherrington Learning Rainforest talks about his mode A and mode B teaching and that kind of 80% mode A, 20% mode B with the inquiry. So definitely kind of thinking about percentages like that in terms of what our teaching should be like, uh, probably not to overgeneralize, but I would imagine a fair bit of teaching at primary possibly verges too far to the inquiry-based learning. And I know um, a quirky teacher who works in the primary schools in early years, she's got some pretty uh, uh, strong views, shall we say, about early years and play and whether we should be kind of structuring uh, the lessons in the early years, so they're more kind of direct instruction and less play, which is a whole other beast into itself. Um, if I had, if you gave me a magic wand uh, and could make every teacher um, know this, it's definitely the uh, the learning over performance with um, from the Bjorks and Saunderson paper. I mean, when I first heard that one, when again Craig Barton's math podcast. Uh, it blew my mind because for the last kind of four years, the kids in front of me seem to be getting it and they're performing well on the lesson. Clearly, they've learned it. Why would you think anything else? And to hear differently was pretty mind-blowing, to be honest. So I definitely kind of think about whether just because they're performing well in this one lesson doesn't mean that they've learned it. So you don't kind of just move on to that conveyor belt curriculum. Find the times to frequently get that retrieval in from those previous topics to make sure they truly have uh, been learnt. 
So those are kind of the, the two big ones for me that I would definitely um, write about. But there's a whole list of eight, and there's something there that's not just for maths, it's there for kind of all teaching, which I think if teachers used would be really helpful in narrowing that attainment gap. Mm. Just interested on the conveyor belt curriculum, and this is something I asked Mark McCourt about. Um, do you feel, as, as a primary teacher, that you kind of have the same pressures in terms of the conveyor belt curriculum? Obviously, I know you've got the, the examinations, the key stage two um, SATS exams. Do you feel as if that's been prevalent? I know that the secondary colleagues definitely do. Yeah, 100%. 100%. They're definitely a thing. It's kind of all... Um, all hands on deck kind of just getting through the curriculum making sure they're ready for um the year six year six sats although soon the um the key stage one sats so the ones that they do at the end of year two um they'll be they'll be dropping those the government will so i'm kind of hoping that could be a time for um the primary teachers in the key stage one to kind of reflect and think about their practice and kind of slow things down because they won't have that um, high-stake test at the end of Key Stage 1 to kind of ensure that the core building blocks um, are there. So hopefully that could have a knock-on effect for everything else. But say we'll have to wait a couple of years until all that's implemented and how leaders decide to react to that change. But I'm confident that that could be a real turning point. Mm, absolutely okay so moving on to um the talk that you've been giving at research ed national and research ed dublin so what a fantastic title and something that will be a lot of listeners interested in so you talked about how you go about applying cognitive science to our primary classroom so that is a big big topic to get into so take your time with this one you can go as long as you can go in each individual section but i presume this was quite a lot in this talk yeah i said got to fill those 40 minutes so it starts off um just a bit of history about me and kind of uh, my background where i came from so um i did the three-year ba course at uni um that ended with um primary teacher qts status and i we learn all the learning styles the cone of learning brain gym we learn all of that that good stuff which we now realize was absolute fodder uh, but before i'd found out all of that i'd started a job um for one of the big academy chains back in 2013 and by the christmas um i was asked to leave because i just wasn't really uh, doing very well because i was implementing and thinking about things like brain gym thinking about I match my instruction to learning styles and all of that kind of stuff. And so then we come on to, um, say, the story that I mentioned at the start about how my girlfriend got a new job and I found um, Craig Barton and his mass podcast and how that totally changed everything for me. And so then we kind of, and it was through the process of kind of learning all about working memory, long-term memory, um, performance versus learning, pre-testing using multiple choice questions, retrieval, getting, spacing, uh, and cognitive load theory as well. I kind of wanted to think about how could I 
turn this into something useful and applicable uh, in the classroom. So, and particularly in the context of um, a maths lesson, as lots of this kind of research seems to focus on maths-based um, tests, although that's far from uh, my speciality. So the first thing that we then talk about is how I start each topic with a, a multiple choice pretest on content that they have covered, but there will also be questions there about the content to be covered um, because there's a lovely little study by um, uh, Elizabeth Bjork in 2011 that showed that if you give um, students questions, pretest questions about the topic that they'll be learning, um, they perform better than if you didn't give them those questions. So I think that's quite a nice quick little win. And because you're mixing with um, prerequisite kind of questions to understand if they can access the content, it's a kind of a two for one kind of deal. And that's quite a replicable finding in uh, cognitive um, science as well. There's been quite a few. So that's also done in, in a by Carpenter and Toughness in 2017, they found that uh, the same findings as well. So I think that's quite a nice little one that teachers can use that doesn't take up um, too much time. Uh, then I kind of go on and explain about how, because of the convey about curriculum that like we've already described, um, there's just a massive kind of rush to get children problem solving with really kind of complicated and complex ideas where they don't have that fluency of, you know, some, sometimes as simple as they don't have their fluency of their multiplication, you know, number bond facts, but then we're asking them to solve um, kind of complex and difficult problems. So it's all about slowing it down and actually having quick, impactful retrieval practice to increase their kind of fluency. So I always start a lesson off with today's number is, say, 50. And then underneath that, there's a grid where um, it says times 10 divided by 10, add 10, take away 10, double it, halve it, square it. Is it prime? Is it composite? Is it a um, list all its factors? So I kind of set the expectation that they need to um, complete that within two to three minutes. And I'll just kind of go through the answers really quickly. Um, and those that can do it then get it fine. Those that struggle, they kind of start to see the patterns develop of what's happening. And within two to three weeks, their kind of fluency and improvement and their speed really kind of increased and improved and really helped them kind of be able to solve those complex problems because there's less the strain on them and working memory. Um, the next slide that I would then do would have, um, I'd split it into three sections, one titled um, This or Last Week, one titled Last Month, one titled Last Term, and I would just have some key questions in each of those headings covering content that we had done this week, last week, last month, or last term. So again, kind of make use of that um, space practice, bringing things back up into working, mem um, into working memory that maybe they hadn't thought about before because Lots of schools use a um, program called White Rose Maths to um, kind of sequence their curriculums. And the sequence is great, but it's very blocked and it doesn't kind of lend itself for um, 
based retrieval unless the teachers heard about all of these things. So I think that's a really useful one for all teachers to kind of know about. Don't just stick to the block, find space, start your lesson, as Rosenshine said, with kind of this retrieval practice. Mm. And that kind of also helps with the idea of um, learning versus performance. So when they were doing whatever activity it was last month, actually, were they just performing really well in that lesson or um, have they actually truly uh, learned it? Mm. (laughs) Then for my new... No, carry on. Uh, Then for um, when I'm introducing a new idea, I kind of mention all about the modality effect and about the visuals, um, how working memory isn't kind of just one thing. It's kind of two separate things, the visio um, spatial sketch pad and the auditory loop and how actually we could be doing things like modeling in silence um, and getting the children to kind of really think about what's happening. Um, when you're modeling a new problem. So again, I kind of use um, the work example. So I'll split the screen into two and have a, a my turn, but I'll probably have a couple of those to kind of model and show. All the other questions will be um, covered in just a, a shape that you can put on you know, PowerPoint, whatever, to avoid the split attention effect so the children aren't kind of focusing on the other question when actually I really want them to be focusing on what I am doing. And again, lots of kind of formative assessment then. Do you have a rough idea of what I'm doing? Do you not have a rough idea of what I'm doing? Can you see what's happening? Lots more practice of those work examples. And again, after you've explained, after you've um, modeled it in silence, talk through it, explain, can they explain to their partner? They have a go on then what's the next, a, a our turn. So I'll get them to explain it to me in the processes or, you know, some quick partner talk. What's the step? What's this next step? What do I do then? Uh, then there'll be some time for them to kind of practice um, on mini whiteboards so I can kind of go around, see what's happening, but then can at the end get them all to show me to truly make sure I'm all happy with them. Then just time for practice, just on those core simple skills that I want them to learn whatever that may be, not thinking about rushing off to get to problem solving with it. I just really want them to become fluent in this method so that it's really embedded uh, in their long-term memory. Then after we've done a few kind of problems, what I'll do is, is get them to really think about what they've actually been doing because the risk is that they can go onto autopilot. And so as we know, uh, Students only remember what they think about. Daniel Willingham, memory is the residue of thought. Um, if they're not really thinking about it, the chances are that they're just performing there at that time. So what I'll kind of do is break the task down. So, if, for example, you were uh, multiplying fractions by whole numbers. I might have a sentence that says multiply the gap, a, a space then, by the and another space. And so they need to kind of think what the words would be to fit into that gap. And we'll go through that. And I'm amazed, actually, the amount of children who um, rush kind of through the actual of um, doing the problems. But when it comes to actually slowing it down and thinking about what they've been doing and kind of sequencing all of that, how many of them actually kind of struggle with that. So I think that's a really nice, effective. And there's an element of metacognition in there as well, kind of really thinking about what have you been doing. 
and then to kind of end the lesson, we'd use a, a diagnostic question again, coming from um, Craig Barton's diagnostic um, questions website. And that's pretty much how I would then go and uh, discuss that lesson and kind of organize those lessons. There's no fancy um, pictures. You know, I don't try and get that quick engagement thing by, you know, just because they're primary kids doesn't mean we need to have, you know, pictures of things that we think that they'd like on on our slides or anything like that. We'd keep it really kind of um, as simple as possible to make sure that their attention is just on the key stuff that we want them want them to learn. That's a, a really quick kind of basis on what the talk is about. And I, I've done when I was there, I was teaching year six when I implemented this. So because of the high stakes test at the end, I could kind of have a rough idea of whether this kind of structure had any kind of impact. And it seems, just from crunching a few numbers myself, that um, it did have a pretty sizable impact compared to what the other class were having in terms of their overall attainment from the key stage two stats. So quietly confident and that it's working and uh, rather nerve-wrackingly uh, at Research Ed uh, Dublin, um, the lady after me in the same room was a, a real-life cognitive scientist. You know, I say that like they're some kind of rare breed and they don't come out often. But I managed to have a quick chat with her, Dr. Victoria Sims, um, and she said I got all the science and the cognitive part of it right. So that was a slight relief, kind of. I was always kind of checking over in her general direction, hoping that there were nods when it got to the real kind of gritty uh, cognitive science aspect of the talk. So thankfully it got her seal of approval. Excellent, excellent. And don't you just love that when that happens? Uh, I had something similar at research at Blackpool where um, I was talking about some parts of the research in the new Ofsted framework. So um, as I started off, in walks Daniel Mers, uh, because Daniel's absolutely brilliant, because when he comes to the conferences, he comes and listens to all the speakers, he comes and chats to everybody around. He's, he's so friendly, so personable, and so sort of, I was going to say down to earth, but in terms yeah. of talking to people. So I've got a situation where he's synthesized the best available evidence, that he, some, some of which he wrote from Southampton. So I had a situation where I had Mers on Mers in front of Mers delivered by me, which was just bizarre. But I know what you mean in terms of just kept every time I check, I have to keep looking over and think, is he okay with this? Is he nodding along? But it sounds like you've got absolutely everything right there to me. So fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I had um, Victoria Sims, um, scientist, and uh, I had Mary Meyer in the room as well. Oh, so. wow. Oh, wow. Just, <laughs> just, slip, just slip that one in as well. Yeah, that was so blimey. Both, both kind of, I was more nervous for Mary to begin with, but then when Victoria said she's a cognitive scientist, I think it kind of went the other way a little bit. But no, Mary was great. She really, really enjoyed the talk, which was great because I've admired Mary and read kind of everything and anything that she puts out there. So to have that experience and have Mary Myatt there in the room is pretty incredible. Absolutely. Can I just ask you in terms of when you started to incorporate some of this cognitive science in your classroom, can I just ask what was the reaction of your colleagues and you know what's been the kind of effect on their practice of some of the stuff that you've been doing? Yeah, so um, this was at an old, um, an old school. I kind of changed jobs pre, um, between July and kind of September. It's quite your, 
I feel like it's quite different to kind of secondary where you might have be having those um, departmental meetings with your department. We're kind of, as long as you're doing well in observations, you're given kind of free reign to do whatever you want as long as the senior leaders are happy. So I was sharing these things with, um, you know, colleagues about these findings, but there was no kind of check to see if they were being implemented themselves with other classes or... Um, it wasn't something that the senior leadership at the school kind of wanted to um, pursue. I think secondary schools are far ahead of um, primary schools when it comes to this kind of cognitive science research-based practice. It doesn't happen that often. I think the only other, while there are other schools, I think the biggest school that probably does it would be um, Reach Academy with um, John Hutchinson, where they have that all through school. Not many primaries, not many primary schools, I think, are quite there yet in kind of this stuff getting down to them. But I'm hoping that because it's becoming so prevalent in the secondary schools and people such as me kind of going to research ed and I, I market it as a, a primary context. So I'm kind of hoping that the people in there, you know, they are primary school teachers who are interested. So hopefully it's just the start and more and more I'm kind of noticing um, research ed organizers kind of ensuring that there's a, a primary strand at their events so there's enough, kind of enough there for a whole day for primary school teachers to really um, get their teeth into which is exciting I'm really excited for um, research ed and where it's going with the amount of primary schools that um, you know that they're trying to they're, they're trying to find these primary practitioners who do take this research and apply it to that setting which is very exciting no absolutely and, and keep up the good work on that front because obviously <laughs> you're, you're pushing that out uh, and, and more and more people and even though maybe you didn't feel as if you were having the influence in the school you just never know you know if you get the chance no. to look into the classroom next door and suddenly you know you, your influence becomes obvious in terms of whether people are just picking up one of the books that you've read or whether they're trying one of the strategies that you've tried you know it is quite a social process research so people do start to pick up things once they feel comfortable once they've had a chat to you about it Oh yeah, massively. And I say because in, say, in primary school you're you're teaching your class all the time. You don't get a chance to kind of see what the person next door to you is doing, let alone what someone in another kind of part of the school would be doing. So mm. it's exciting. No, it is. It is. Now speaking, that's a perfect segue into speaking of exciting. Now I feel like I'm putting you on the spot with this one, but I believe Uh-oh. that you may have um, an exclusive for the Nailers Natter podcast. So I, I'm just too excited to hear what this might be. Too excited. So um, there's a group of us on Twitter organising um, a Bruhead Maths, and we've got some pretty um, great speakers uh, for that for that day. That's going to be in January uh, the 11th. Uh, 2020 and we're kind of excited to say that we do have um, Bernie Westcott who is if you know primary maths like that is a very 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 big big name and so we're kind of hoping that that's really going to um, bring some people in to kind of really showcase um, best practice we've got we've got joe morgan as well math gem she's agreed to come down and talk to us as well and kind of lead a session there so we're kind of hoping that 
we'll have representatives from all phases from early years, primary and secondary. And there's a few other names as well, but I'm not allowed to mention those. But the exclusive is that Bernie will be there in all his uh, manipulative glory. Hopefully he'll bring his bring his case down with him and show us some really cool things because manipulatives are such a powerful way in um, to teach maths and it's something desperately missing from primary education in terms of teacher training these manipulatives. I was on a, a Mark McCourt training the other uh, a week or two ago and he showed us how he was getting children in year two to kind of, you know, factorize equations just by using algebra tiles and how easy it actually was. And I mean, I had done factorizing since GCSE, so I wouldn't have any idea what to do about it. But the fact that he was showing a really simple method and getting, you know, year two children, so that's seven-year-olds to kind of factorize, really, really powerful. So yeah, we've got Bernie. Tickets will be released, uh, hopefully the end of October. Uh, you need to get a ticket because we're just kind of scratching the surface with the names there as well. We've got another big one that I can't tell you yet. Sorry. It's not Craig Barton, is it, after this podcast? I think I feel like, I feel like the, more, the, the amount of mentions that we've had, I feel like he's duty-bound now. To be, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it would be great. It would be, it would be great. But uh, no, it, it's not Craig. <laughs> It'd be quite interesting, actually, because it would be able to see whether he, in fact, does listen to the podcast or not as to whether he responded to I mean, this. If, so if, we, can, if, we can put it out there, can't we? Yeah, I mean, Craig, if you're available uh, January the 11th down in Croydon, uh, feel free to come along. We'll put you on the bill straight away. Excellent, excellent. Well, that, that is a great exclusive for the podcast. So, so thank you very much for that, Neil. And what we'll do is we'll put uh, links to that on the show notes at the start. So um, just moving into, because I, I say this every time and people are probably bored of hearing it, but we like to keep it to commute length just so that people can get in the car or right. in my case, get on the bike and listen to this uh, on the way to work. So no, just a last a, question. Sorry, go on. I know that's the great thing I love about your podcast is, you know, there's only so many Barton epics you can, you can take. I, lo- I love 30 minutes, 40 minutes. It's great. No, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and, and, and as you know, I enjoy both. And uh, you know, on some on some of the commutes, like tonight's commute, so I don't know what uh, what, the, what the weather's like down there tonight. But uh, to say, that, I, yeah, I was pretty quick down Blackpool Prom going one way, <laughs> but when there's a force ten gale blowing in your face the other way, not so quick on the bike this evening. So I I do tend to go for the Craig Barton epics uh, when I'm on a windy sort of gale force day on Blackpool Prom, and watch out for the illuminations dropping on your head as you go past. Lovely. An insight into my life you didn't need there, Neil, but there you go. <laughs> no, it really, I, I love a good cycle. Absolutely. Right, so last question would be, um, is there anything that you've got in the pipeline, of, apart from the exciting news on the conference, any future writing, any presentations? Where can listeners find out more about you and, and see you next? Uh, so I'm at New Voices next weekend. I'm talking about curriculum and looking into a bit more detail about um the Simpsons versus Game of Thrones and how we should apply that idea when we're um, designing curriculum. I've got Research Ed Surrey the week after that. I'm going to be at Research Ed Birmingham next year in um, 2020. Um, quite excitingly, I've also been um, asked 
by um, Claire Seeley to write a chapter for those the research ed curriculum books. So if you're interested in the blog, right, hang on, stop, find... stop the press. And these these <laughs> these announcements just get better and better, don't they? It's a bit. It's a bit. Yeah. It's uh, when I started this whole kind of Twitter thing, I didn't think for one moment it would escalate into something like this. And I have to say, I have a very, very uh, patient and supportive uh, fiancé who lets me go and do these things every, it seems to be something every other weekend. So, uh, yeah, grateful for that. But, yeah, it's, it's literally all kicking off in a good way. I'm very, very, yeah, very happy. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us tonight and thanks for all those revelations and I might get a chance to actually see you because I'm going to be down at Research Ed Birmingham as well uh, in March next year so hopefully we get a chance to catch up and if, if you're going to be talking about the primary science curriculum and the, and the Simpsons and Game of Thrones um, if, if I'm not speaking at the same time I'm definitely in that session without a shadow of a doubt. Alright, brilliant. Can't wait to meet you then, Phil. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Neil. Thanks for your time tonight and I look forward to seeing you soon. Look forward to seeing you soon. Cheers. Thank you. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy, listening to teachers. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. So into the shameless plugs section, and we have South Shore's Teach Meet, uh, which is the 16th of January from 4 till 6 p.m. And I believe we're into the hundreds of tickets sold for that already. So if you haven't got one, get one pretty soon. Uh, Brew Ed Aussie on the 1st of February 2020, where I'll be talking about curriculum. Um, so come along. Love to see some Neil as Natter listeners there if you can make it. Research Ed Birmingham is going to be absolutely massive, and that's on the 7th of March 2020. And Mary Myatt, whose book I've been featuring and who will be a future guest, is also going to be there. So if you haven't got tickets for that, and in fact, if there are any available, I know that they've released some extra ones, but if you can get one, definitely get one for Research Ed Birmingham. Research Ed Blackpool, I know that there won't be any more tickets available for that, as we literally have nowhere left to put people. So if you are interested in Research Ed Blackpool, then um, tickets have, have sold out, unfortunately, but you can still get involved and you can still enjoy the conversation on the day. So you follow that at the hashtag Research Ed Blackpool. And also, uh, I've been asked to come and speak at Research Ed Rugby, which I'd be delighted to do. Went there last year and it's a fantastic conference. So that's in May of next year. Uh, I say this every week and every week it doesn't happen but one of these weeks it will make a difference so I'm still looking for uh, podcast pedagogy contributors or correspondents so I'd love to hear from listeners about your experiences of using some of our guests wisdom in some of your own classrooms because as we say it is about talking to teachers and also about listening to teachers so if you've been sharing if you could share some of your experiences then let me know and there's contact details on the website at nailersnatter.co.uk. I'm also looking forward to more face-to-face events in 2020, so if you're interested in having me come and speak at one of those, then get in touch via the website or via Twitter or any of the usual channels. So, um, it just remains to say, once again, thank you for listening to Nailers Natter. Like, subscribe and share via um, all the usual places and see you next week. Nailers 
Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. 